electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market side overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Karen Feinerman, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, we're all over the after-hours action in banks. Many of the big names on the move right now after announcing changes to their dividends and buybacks. We're breaking down the action straight ahead. Plus, we're trading the software Surge, the IGV ETF, hitting a fresh all-time high today. But is there trouble in the charts for this red-hot group? And later, Boeing hits a headwind. We'll tell you the headline that took nearly $5 billion off the company's market cap today. But we start off with a massive late-day surge in Facebook. Shares soaring to all-time highs after a judge dismissed the FTC's antitrust complaint against the company. Julia Borson joins us now with the latest. Julia. That's right, Melissa. A federal judge dismissed the state attorney's general case filed against Facebook back in December in which it called for the divestiture of Instagram or WhatsApp. The judge saying that there's no precedent for such a long delay before filing claims and seeking a remedy for acquisitions. The judge also dismissed the FTC's complaint against Facebook, saying it failed to establish that Facebook has monopoly power in social networking. But here's the crucial part. The judge did not dismiss the FTC's case gave the commission until July 29th to refile an amended complaint. Facebook responding, saying, quote, we are pleased that today's decisions recognize the defects in the government's complaints filed against Facebook. We compete fairly every day to earn people's time and attention and will continue to deliver great products for the people and businesses that use our services. Now, analyst Michael Nathanson telling us, quote, there isn't a win until we know the full extent of what the new FTC will do and what the pending congressional legislation will look like. No one should spike the ball yet in mega-cap tech land until we see it all. But this is clearly a setback for the government's push to break up the social media giant. That news is sending shares of Facebook today up more than 4%, with the company's valuation topping $1 trillion for the first time. Now, it could also bode well for the other tech giants who are facing antitrust scrutiny. Amazon shares also moving higher on this news. Now, we have reached out to the FTC for comment and have not heard back from them yet. Guys, back over to you. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borson, this was perceived as potentially the biggest regulatory threat facing Facebook, which has now looked like, at least for now, stalled. So, Guy, good news. Does this stick? Do these games stick? Yeah, I do. I think, listen, first of all, you should never spike the fall. Actually, first of all, it's great seeing Karen Feinerman in, in person. person. In person. I know. I know. Fantastic. I'm very happy about that, number one. Number two, you should never spike the ball ever. Barry Sanders had an entire career handed the ball to the referee when he made it into the end zone, number two. Very nice. Number three, if you're long Facebook, you can absolutely spike the ball, but we've been saying that now for a while. I mean, I can make a pretty compelling case that this should be trading 385 off the 16 or so dollars they're going to earn. You put a 24 multiple on it, you get there. 
probably higher than that. And I don't think we've been glib, but we said this is probably just going to be sort of a, a speed bump on the way to 385-400. I'm going to stick by that in the earnings at the end of July. We have had this conversation on the show many, many times. We talked about some sort of threat, a lawsuit being filed. Stock barely reacts. We sit here on the desk or remotely, as it were, and say, no, it's not a big deal at all. It's not a big deal for Facebook. It's going to be nothing. They won't be able to prove it. And then life goes on. But here we are. The case gets dismissed and Facebook goes higher. Doesn't make sense to me. Well, I think that the threat is actually worth much more than $14 if it were to pass. Okay. Right? So this is just one multiple point in a P.E. that I already thought was somewhat low. So this is not, I don't think of this as Facebook shareholders spiking the ball. This is like, okay, okay, this is nice. This is still, to me, a very compelling value stock. Right? We talk about, I mean, you know... The valuation on a PE basis is cheap. That's when you back and when you put the cash back in. That's another fifty billion dollars. They're growing, and I mean the margins here are phenomenal. So, to me, this is it's nice, but one multiple point is not. That's a, that's a minor hurrah. Mm-hmm. It's hardly spiking the ball. So I still like it here. I think this is marginally good news. It ain't over though. The F the whole threat, right? For sure. So it's still there. I don't know how much the rest of that threat is worth. But this isn't saying, oh, it's trading like the threat is completely over. They can certainly refile. They have until July 29th, I think is what Julia said. Tim, I thought what was interesting was that one thing that the judge picked on was the length of time between now and when Facebook actually acquired Instagram and WhatsApp. It was a matter, It was years, um, and yet they decide to go after them now at this point. And that's not going to be remedied with any refiling. Yeah, I, look, and I think there's, there's uh, uh, other, uh, you know, potential football teams uh, looking to put the pressure on Facebook in the form of a number of state legislators and, and essentially state courts houses to be continued. So I don't think they're going to be spiking it too hard, but good for Karen for staying in the pocket. She's been talking about this valuation for a long time. Um, I, I think, right, they, they, the argument was um, you didn't argue enough allegations against Facebook here and, and that the Instagram and WhatsApp uh, acquisitions were, were, were not antitrust. And in fact, um, you know, Facebook's argument is that, hey, we can compete in the advertising world, which I believe their quote was, which is relentlessly competitive. Um, and I think if you like Facebook and you're a fan of Facebook, as uh, both Guy and Karen seem to be um, and have been for some time, you, you know, you look at their AR business, which is something else they've been slowly unveiling, that that really is where I think a lot of the digital ad work is going. Google's there. Uh, they're there. And I think they're going to be of the leaders there. So if you if you if you look at the story here and yes, you said we've been on this show. I remember June of 2019. I think it was June of 2018, too. There was big days where we saw those first couple shots across the about big cap tech, mega cap tech across the board traded down. Um, look, this is a, a very, very uh, important day, and it's no surprise. It's not just a coincidence uh, that mega cap tech hit all-time highs today, that the FANG names have been running, and, and I think this is exactly why. It's interesting what has happened since those initial shots across the bow, Brian Kelly, is that we have seen time and time again Facebook prove that is, it is, for the most part, the only game in town when it comes to advertising. No matter what protests you threw at Facebook, no matter what movements boycotted Facebook, the ad dollars still went to Facebook. And that happened right. as all of this was being argued in the courts. Right. And we, and we saw it during the pandemic that Facebook is incredibly important to small business, right? So to me, I think now the market starts to open up and starts to 
price in the, the, the potential that can Facebook have that super app or more to move towards that super app that they wanted to have all along, which is combining Instagram, WhatsApp, and Facebook. Um, I don't think this, this case and this dismissal actually opens the door for that, but the market's gonna start pricing out that probability and they still do have that pricing power. So to belabor the football uh, analogy, it's as if they could <laughs> kick the oblong ball through the giant H. That's about it. Which is the goal of the game of football. I do no, 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 no. That's not, that's not the goal of the game. Of, it's, that's one of the goals. That's not the main goal of the game. That's how you win the game. Sounds like rugby. Anyway. Thank you, Tim. That, let, Tim is let us Let us move on in this conversation. Should the rest of tech celebrate this decision, Karen, do you think? Since all of them had targets on their backs. Right. No, I think they should all lay low as much as possible. No, seriously. I mean, you know, the, the specifics of each case are different, right? You bring up the point about how long ago they did those two acquisitions. And, and some of the other uh, ones under attack have different fact patterns, right? So we still have a potential, uh, you know, an administration that might not be so friendly. So I, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be dancing in the in the end zone if I were any of the other ones either. Yeah. I mean, the composition <laughs> of the FTC is still up in the air. Yeah, There's we, a lot we, we don't know in terms of the players in the yeah. game, if you want to continue that. And I'm long metaphor. enough. I'm staying long enough. Yeah. No question. I mean, Karen brings everybody brings up great points. Again, I just think these are speed bumps along the way. And, and we've made the argument. I know Tim and Karen have that if you were to break these companies up, it's actually the, the stocks actually might be worth yeah. more than they are now. So they seem to be it's a win win for them regardless. And everything else is just theater, in my opinion, in terms of the rest of technology. You know, maybe you're going to get an opportunity after quarter end, half year end this week to see these stocks a little bit lower. But in the earnings at the end of July, for most of the companies, we talk about the mega complex that Dan coined. I think these things set up extraordinarily well. Yeah. Um, Tim, you know, the thing about the sum of the parts analysis, I get it intellectually, but I don't get it because there a lot of these businesses do operate in a flywheel, for instance, or parts of the business bankroll other parts of the business. So how could you actually break up? I mean, is that really a, a valid argument to make? Well, they, they've, they've all certainly been created as businesses that could stand alone uh, on some level. But there's no question that the flywheel and, and whether it's Apple uh, or Google, uh, there's no question, especially when it comes back to advertising. Um, I think you, you've got a story where, yes, you can make an argument that the sum of the parts it, it, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts, excuse me. But I, I still think that if you had to break these businesses up, I think we, we'd find that Instagram is a much greater valuation than is imputed right now. And I'll just say this about uh, about Facebook relative to, to the triple Qs, so to that peer group that's FANG. And Mel, I know you're a bill, big Billy White Shoes Johnson fan, but I mean, they're doing the dance in the end zone like nobody's business right now. They've outperformed triple Qs by 28%. 28% since mid-January. So the Facebook outperformance story is not something that just happened today. This is something that's been going on for, for most of this year um, off of a low in sentiment on, on Facebook uh, at that time. But it's been a great story. BWJ, my fave, as you all know. I know. Billy White, um, <laughs> Brian, Brian Kelly, your favorite in big cap tech land from this point on. Well, I, I think you got to look, you know, I'd look at something like a Microsoft here, but they all have a tailwind. We, I mean, if we just broaden it out to what's going on in the market here, you look at the yield curve, it's flatter. You look at yields, 
they're lower. You look at tech, it's rallying. You look at cyclicals, they are selling off. And so this is that idiosyncratic growth. I don't need a strong economy to have good earnings here. That's what's happening with tech. And all of these have that tailwind. That to me is the story of the market here. Now, the FTC decision and releasing some of this regulatory issue is icing on the cake. But the real story is the market is telling you that the economy is likely to slow down and that you're going to need stocks that can grow without a strong economy. All right. Well, let's stick with tech here. Software stocks downloading some pretty big gains this month. The IGB software ETF climbing nearly 10 percent in June. So is this rally for real or is this one giant head fake? Let's go off the charts with Chris Verone of Strategus. Chris, what are you looking at? Well, I brought along a few charts, but I think the right context is exactly what you just said. Over the last, let's call it 35 trading days, the IGV, the software ETF, is up 20%. So I think the question is, has this move already happened or is there more to go? Um, I want to bring up our first chart here. It's just the IGV. We've seen it break out uh, above this range it's been in basically since February. But what I want to note is under the surface, it's actually been a little bit more bifurcated than what we've been used to. I think the good news is we're up through 390. That was a big level. I think the bad news is, believe it or not, IGV has actually not made a new relative high versus the S&P. So the new absolute highs are just not quite as strong relative to the index compared to what we saw earlier uh, this year. I think that's worth noting. And if you go to our second slide here, I think the other thing worth noting is we just need to appreciate the fact that a lot of the software space is now overbought into what is approaching a more challenging stretch uh, of the calendar. You have the RSI somewhere in that 75, 76 range. Now, I don't view that as fatal, but I wouldn't be surprised if coming weeks or coming months might be a little bit more frustrating than what we just went to. And I think BK speaks to this as well. We just had a huge tailwind of bond yields going 180 back to the 140, 145 range. So, Yields more stable here, an overbought condition for software, not making new relative highs. I think at the very least, we got to pick our spots. And that's what we'll do here. We brought along three names, two we like, one we don't. Um, the first one, uh, listen, it's hard not to still like this Microsoft chart. It, this has been one of the great trends of the index, not just the past year or five years, really the past 10, 12 years. And that hasn't changed for us. The trend is intact. The relative position of the stock has also broken out versus the S&P. We like that. I think tactically you could probably look to a 290, 295 target. Uh, the second one we like long here is Salesforce. You know, our thinking is Adobe's already broken out, so why not Salesforce? They're similar looking charts. Um, you know, above 250 would be bullish here, and I think that would kind of point you to that 300 target. So Microsoft long, Salesforce long, I think are the good part of this group. On the weaker side, we need to be mindful of names that are just rallying into downtrends. And I think Coupa Software, big name, 25 billion market cap name, is an example of just that. It's rallying in a downtrend. 200-day moving average is above it. We like to be sellers of overbought conditions and downtrends. I think you'll get that opportunity here. So important couple of weeks in front of us for software. Pick your spots. It's more bifurcated despite the new high. Microsoft long, Salesforce long, be a seller at Coupa. Um, Chris, just a quick question on the overall index, the overall I, uh, ETF. Would now be a time to short the IGV, or is it too early to say when you say it's going to be a rough couple of weeks? Yeah, I think it's too early to say. I'd say, number one, we don't short uptrends, and the trend in IGV is up. But I just want to be mindful that under the surface, it really is not as dominant as it was in the second half uh, of last year. 
Okay. Chris, great to see you. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Verone. Karen, I asked that question specifically for you. Yeah. Well, so I, am short. Short. I, I am short. I am short now. Some, right. Okay. I am. We had a chance in May to cover when mm. things got really ugly, but I, I remain short. I do have some positions that I think of it as a hedge for something like a Palantir. CRM, I did a bad job. I bought it well, and then it went up like three points, and I sold it, which is terrible. That's just a terrible job. We'll see. I mean, I, I like the CRM call, and we'll see the Slack acquisition should close in July. Yeah, I think Salesforce, Chris is right. Through 250, then you've finally broken that downtrend from last August when it was trading, what was it, 285 or so, the all-time high. But until then, you're standing and waiting. So I think Karen's going to be able to buy this stock probably cheaper. If not, you buy it on a breakout above 250. So Salesforce, to me, is the most interesting one on that list. All right. Coming up, we are tracking the after-hours action in the banks. Many of the big names making big changes to their buyback and dividend programs. You'll hear from one top analyst who calls this a turning point for the group. Plus, a biotech boom shares of Intellia Therapeutics soaring today on the back of positive results for its gene editing treatment. We've got all the details when Fast Money returns. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. A big biotech breakthrough today. Shares of Intellia Therapeutics surging after the company announced positive test results from its experimental gene editing treatment. Let's get to Meg Terrell for all the details. Hey, Meg. Hey, Melissa. So we've seen CRISPR gene editing technology be applied in some diseases like sickle cell and beta thalassemia with really great early results. But those were different from what we saw with Intellia here, because in those situations, they actually took patient cells out of their bodies, gene edited them in the lab and then returned them to patients. This data with Intellia, which was uh, released over the weekend, was the first time we've ever seen CRISPR gene editing technology be delivered systemically like other medicines. It was given in an IV infusion to treat this very rare disease known as ATTR. And essentially, they were looking to see if they could uh, do this delivery successfully, do it safely and knock down this protein that causes the problems in this disease. And they did that on all three counts. And on the higher dose of this medicine, 87% reduction was seen in that key protein. So, Mel, this is early days. This was only six patients in this phase one trial and only three on that higher dose. But because of the proof of concept here, you are seeing not just Intellia stock going up, but other 
companies working in gene editing as well, from CRISPR therapeutics to Editas to Beam therapeutics, as well as Verve therapeutics. Uh, these are all after hours, but during the trading day today, all of those stocks were way up. Um, you also have Kathy Wood being in this space with her ETF uh, in the genomic revolution. So that ETF has been very hot. And finally, there was uh, one company that did not do quite so well today, and that's Elnylam, because they make uh, an approved drug for this very rare condition that investors are already seeing potential competition coming from just this small phase one study. Mel, back to you. Meg, thank you. Meg Terrell. Um, Guy Donnie, yes. this is, I don't want to say deep end of the pool, but I mean, where you're really trading on these initial results. And it's interesting. Yes, 100 percent. But we have something we can go back and look at over the last month, month and a half. Obviously, great news. And if you're a shareholder, you're thrilled. But the question is, what do you do here? And I would suggest taking profits. And this is the reason why. Number one, this is the news clearly people have been waiting for. You got your news. Here's your catalyst. Take money off the table. Number two, traded 19 times normal volume. A lot of latecomers to the dance. Typically, those are crescendos to the upside and the downside capitulation. And number three, you saw this to a certain extent in Biogen. Go back about a month, month and a half ago when Biogen came out with their news. Stock went to $415 a share-ish. We talked about it that night. We said, here's your opportunity. This is what you've been waiting for. Take some money off the table. I think it maybe traded up to 425 Closed today around 340. As a matter of fact, last week we said if it gets back down to 330, you buy it with both hands, and I'll stand by that as it traded down to 333. The point is the market's giving you a shot to take money off the table. I think you should take it. I mean, when you see Leering, for instance, raise its price target to 159 from $70 and say the likelihood for success is now 70% from 40%, you think, you know what, BK, it's still not pricing in the full 159. Yes, it's not, right? But everybody, the market is, right? So they may not be pricing in the full 159 that the analyst thinks, but the market has certainly priced it in. So I'm more in guy's camp where you want to take your profit on these. If you want to stay long biotech with the idea that this is going to be a big part of the future and you're going to see more breakthroughs in this, which I do think, then you probably want to stick, at least I stick with an ETF. Now, XBI, IBB, they both seem to have a false breakout. But if you get a little bit of a pullback in that, I think you buy those two ETFs just to get that broad exposure to this space. Karen? Agree. I mean, I always said I can't, I don't, can't stand the idea of waking up with a phase three trial that doesn't go the right way. So the XBI is a much broader list of smaller biotech companies. The IBB is some bigger ones, um, but I would do it through both of those. I couldn't agree more with them. If you, if you owned this going in, congratulations, good for you. You've got to take at least some off the table. Tim? Yeah, look, I mean, Regeneron's rallied, you know, 25 percent, you know, with this news also of support um, for, again, their their whole piece in this space. I think you've got a case. Guy's point on Biogen is also a really good one. These headlines are fantastic. Um, and ultimately, you come to some sense in this case look, the durability of this data is still, you know, very, very shallow. Um, and, and it's it's a wonderful headline in a very complex and important space. But I think that's the right call. And on, on these two ETFs that the gang here has outlined 145 to 170 has kind of been your range on the IBB. Uh, this breakout above 170 is something we've all been waiting for, and I think it's 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 heading that way. Still ahead, we're all over the after hours action in the banks. Bank of America, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, just a few of the big names announcing increases to their dividends. Top ranked analyst Mike Mayo says this is a turning point for the group. He will join us next. And later, one of our traders went on a crypto buying binge today. Guess which one it was? <laughs> They'll tell us. He or she, why they're picking up some serious coin. All that and much more when Fast Money returns.
What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Big banks on the move in the after hours. Morgan Stanley announcing it's doubling its dividend. Our next guest says this marks a major turning point for the sector. Let's bring in Mike Mayo, senior analyst at Wells Fargo. Mike, why is this a turning point? Well, this brings in a new era for banks with freedom and flexibility to return capital the way they choose to do so and not wait for the regulators to give their okay. And so what you've seen so far with the banks out, you see a median dividend increase of 10%. And by the way, this is taking place with still low interest rates before loan growth has returned. And this amounts to what's really redemption for the banks and investors in banks. Remember, going into this recession, the pandemic, the concern was that if banks didn't fail, they certainly would be cutting their dividends. And here we have a median dividend increase so far on the banks that we've seen of up 10%. What we think this leads to, it might not be fast money. I know this is the show that I'm on, but we'll call it, you know, somewhere between slow and fast money because it should result in a virtuous cycle. Okay, right now you get the dividend increases and then you realize that the yield on some of these banks on dividends or the all-in yield buybacks and dividends to market cap look great. And then they show up on screens like the, the quant screens, and then you get a greater pool of investors, whether it's quant funds or dividend funds or income funds, starting to take a bigger look at banks and buying more banks. So it's a new era. It's redemption for the banks. It's a virtuous cycle. And take Bank of America as an example. They increased their dividend tonight by 17%. With buybacks, we think they'll be returning almost $30 billion over the next year. Now, their market cap is $350 billion. So $30 billion divided by $350 billion is, is almost 8%. So when we talk about an 8% all-in yield, mm-hmm. where globally do you get an so, 8% yield? I mean, junk bonds yield like 4 or 5%. So Bank of America is yielding uh, the all-in yield 300 basis points more than junk bonds. And it's not just Bank of America. It's, it's the banks across the board, right. which are becoming more bond so, proxy rates. So when you see a gain for Bank of America, since you mentioned it, of 37 percent this year or 28 percent for Morgan Stanley, you don't think that looks ahead to this anticipated um, increase to the gross payout? Well, that, that's why I rang the bell here. Um, <laughs> look, we, we had I think what you've seen so far is Act One and Act One was the improving credit quality from the depths of the pandemic. You've had very strong capital markets. Act Two, it doesn't happen overnight. And, but over the next five quarters, you're likely to see more dividend increases, more buybacks, more of the capital story. And also part of Act Two is the loan growth story. It's not here yet, but over the next several quarters, it just seems very logical that loan growth is going to come back. That's what we're hearing from the banks. We're seeing line utilization improve. We're seeing as supply chains un, you know, get fixed, then you get more loan growth. And then if you want to stay for Act Three, that's how the industry is driving toward record efficiency over time. But right now, this is the beginning of Act 2, and we say Act 2 you know, lasts the next 12 to 18 months. 
Mike, thanks for being on our show. It's Karen. Um, I am, you know, you're preaching to the choir. I'm long banks. I like the valuations. However, the thing that sort of keeps me up at night about the banks is fintech. And I wonder if you could address that sort of, I don't know, large scale macro threat to some of these franchises. There are some fantastic fintech players out there. They've done a great job at capturing some of the underbanked or underserved. You certainly see they, they've taken big share in the, in the payment space, you know, and shame on the banking industry for allowing that to happen. Having said that, some of the best fintech players on the planet include Bank of America and J.P. Morgan, with tens of millions of customers uh, and deepening relationships. It's not just like you used to have automatic bill pay or something like that, but now you have like multiple digital transactions that are building digital relationships. And uh, you're really seeing them you know, influence the, the environment a lot more and they get a lot more efficient. And by the way, if you look at companies outside of banking who have really made that digital transformation, they get higher PE. So, you know, we argue unsuccessfully so far that some banks like a Bank America or a JP Morgan with this fintech advantage should have extra premium valuation. But for now, you'll, you're likely to see that uh, in improving efficiency. Mike, I can't spell doppelganger, but you and Christian Bale, man, I'm telling you, separated at birth, number one. So take that to the bank. Number two, you're all geeked up. They report these banks over the next, I think, the beginning of July, first week, second week of July. What's the one metric we should be looking at above all others? For me, it's always been tangible, but what are you looking at? Well, I really just like seeing improving efficiency, revenues versus expenses. But that's over several years. The one metric I want you to focus on, okay, here's the metric. I think it's a turning point. If it wasn't first to second quarter, and this does apply to fast money, is net interest income. All right, those are traditional banking revenues. And over the past year, we're talking first quarter 21 versus first quarter 20, that was the biggest decline in net interest income in a century. Did you get that? And now we think it's a quarterly, quarter over quarter turning point for net interest income. That's partly because... The 10-year yield has come up. It's partly because the loans aren't going down as much and as loan growth comes back. So if it doesn't happen first quarter to second quarter, it's happening second quarter to third quarter. And that will get people to realize, hey, and when you get higher rates and more loan growth on top of that, that's the gravy. And a lot of those revenues will be falling to the bottom line. Mike, good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Mike Mayo, Wells Fargo. Brian Kelly, I go to you. What do you think of this whole turning point, bell ringing, you know, thesis? <laughs> Love the bell, first of all. Love the bell. Wish I had one of my own. Uh, so, listen, I mean, I think this this goes to your time frame, right? So Mike said it very well. This is not necessarily a fast money trade. So what he's talking about is over the next 12 to 18 months. But in the short term, you know, I think these banks have, number one, anticipated this, obviously. Maybe not Morgan Stanley. That seems to be a bit of a surprise. But secondarily, the yield curve is, is not flat, but it's flatter than it was last week. So I find them to be challenged. And in particular, the regional banks, to me, seem to be the ones that are challenged the most. So if I wanted to play in finance, fin- the financials anywhere, I'd be long fintech and I would be short the banks, particularly the regional banks. Yeah. Um, for all Mike Mayo saying that fintech, you know, J.P. Morgan's a great fintech player. It is Jamie Dimon himself who raised the threat of fintech in his letter. Um, Tim Seymour, what did you find surprising, if anything, in terms of the, the gross payout increases that we've seen? 
Well, no. I mean, look, the, these banks also think about how quickly and how large they provisioned on COVID dynamics. I mean, there, there's so much capital, uh, I think, to unlock here. And, and look, the, the banks have had a target on their back until they didn't uh, in the Trump administration. And then there were really some concerns, frankly, as we got out of the gates with the Biden administration. So this is this is, I, I think, a real relief trade for banks that had run, as we've all said, and priced in some of this good news. But but to be clear, and, and the interesting part, I thought, about what Christian, I mean, Mike said, excuse me, um, is, uh, you know, the case you've got this dynamic with the lower end of the interest rate curve. And, and that actually, if anything, uh, the flattening curve has been part of where banks have run into some pressure, I think, on the charts over the last, call it six weeks. I think people have been concerned that the net interest you know, revenues or net interest interest uh, is something that they actually are going to continue to see the tailwind on. So that's, to me, really the crux of this argument. The sensitivity there, uh, I think the market's been overly sensitive in terms of where banks have exposure there. I mean, uh, loan growth is clearly growing uh, if you believe what we're all saying about the strength of the economy here. So uh, I like banks. Uh, I think they have had a, a heroic run, uh, but they've given some back. And this is this is time to get back into the trade. All right. Coming up, some serious star power entering the Bitcoin ETF game. Our own Bitcoin baller, Brian Kelly, is here to break down the news. But first, shares of Boeing losing altitude as regulators push back approval for its new plane. We've got all the details on that one next. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Boeing hitting some headwinds today after the FAA pushed back approval of its newest long-range jet. Let's get to Phil Lebeau, who's got all the details. Hey, Phil. Hey, Melissa, you know, this has been uh, widely speculated and expected for some time that the 777X would not be certified by the FAA until well into 2023. Even Boeing has said the guidance is pushing it back. But what we got over the weekend was a letter from the FAA to Boeing in May basically saying here's the reason why this plane is at least two years away from certification, a number of technical issues. They did say to us uh, when we looked at this letter, the FAA will not approve any aircraft unless it meets our safety and certification standards. Now, for Dave Calhoun and Boeing, this is yet another question of what's going on between Boeing and the FAA and its relationship when it comes to the inspection and certification of aircraft. By the way, Dave Calhoun did say earlier this year that they did not expect this 777X to be certified until late 2023. So this is not new guidance from the airline or from the company, but it is a glimpse into the relationship between Boeing and the FAA. In a statement today or yesterday, Boeing said it remains fully focused on safety as our highest priority throughout 777X development as we subject the plane to a comprehensive test program to demonstrate its safety and reliability. We are working through a rigorous development process to ensure we meet all applicable standards. Boeing has 320 777Xs that have been ordered. It's hard to say that this is good news from Boeing from a customer standpoint, but one thing you should keep in mind, Melissa, is that these planes uh, basically replacing the 747, they're not in demand right now by airlines like Emirates. It's not like these airlines are saying, hey, we need to fly people long distances internationally. That market is dead in the water right now. That said, the fact that you see more of the issues that are coming to the surface being publicly acknowledged by the FAA, that is an indication of the strained relationship between Boeing and the FAA. And remember, they already have issues with regard to the inspection of aircraft coming uh, with the, the 787 Dreamliners. We all know what happened with the MAX. So it, it does have people asking more questions about the execution and developing aircraft. 
Phil, I saw a story earlier today. I immediately thought of you, as I often do. But United might announce the biggest order in the history of Jets, 33 to $35 billion. We're not talking about it now, but is that a potential catalyst here for the space? Well, that that story has been out there for some time, uh, at least three weeks. And if and when that order finally does happen, um, I think it is to a certain extent baked in. It would certainly be good news for both Airbus as well as Boeing, because the the speculation is that both would share in that order. Um, So I think to a large extent that is baked in. Uh, Remember, both order books, they would love to have somebody like a United or any airline come in and make a big commitment because they lost so many orders, you know, over the last year, year and a half. Bill, great to have you in-house here at the NASDAQ market site. Good to be here. Bill LeBeau although not on set. Mm. He did stop by and get a Snickers. Um, <laughs> Tim Seymour, what do you make of the sub Boeing news? Well, I think it's in the FAA and Boeing's best interest to have a very vocal uh, type or a, a lot of headlines around you know, these types of moments. And I think, in other words, both, both have a vested interest in appearing that they're being overly cautious, uh, overly communicative, either in the FAA's case, really, to, to, to be the watchdog and to, and to you know, make it clear um, that they need to be in, impressed by the developments and not to push deadlines. And, and I think from Boeing's perspective, I think they, they properly adhered and played the right game from a PR perspective, in addition to actually you know, handling the FAA's request. So if you look at the stock, um, the uptrend off of that October 30 low on, on Boeing, I think still very much intact. The 100 and the 200 are very much uh, on an upward trajectory. And, and if you look at those order books, yeah, I mean, I think in the short run, you know, clearly, first of all, Boeing lags Airbus on, on the narrow bodies. But on the wide bodies, this is really where uh, the company has an edge and where I think the company is going to continue to see a recovery in this business. It's not overnight, but but the, the stock's not, you know, it's not trading as if you're getting that overnight. So I think you can stay in this trade again in the uptrend. I don't know if you could have planned it better in a way. I mean, just to go along with Tim's thinking here, I mean, if the FBA is going to push back re- a certification of a plane, you might as well do a plane that's not really in demand. So it doesn't affect any timelines. Anyhow, Brian Kelly, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I'm sure that's crossed other people's minds. Yeah, sure. I mean, so in terms of is this a driver for the stock, it's probably not for that exact reason that, you know, nobody really expected this thing or needed this thing to be in the air in the next 12 months. And so you've got some time here. That being said, I do think it it raises some questions about Boeing and the process of certification. The FAA is certainly, you know, CYA on this to make sure that they don't have another situation where stuff slips through the cracks. But, yeah, you want to buy Boeing here, great, but up at 300, this thing seems very challenged. And remember, there's the other half of the business here, which is the defense side. And if the last month has taught us anything, we are unlikely to see any type of conflict that would involve the defense side of Boeing. It's more going to be a cyber type of conflict. And so I don't think that's the driver that everybody thinks they were in the past. So, you know, have at it. You want to try to buy it from 240 to 300, go for it. It's not for BK. Have at it. Have I mean, that was so damn Nathan. Channeling is in. That's a tremendous job by you, BK. You know, I should have I phrased the question different, I guess, to Phil, but the story has been out there. But recently, I guess over the last couple of days, I've seen the announcement might be this week. Although it might be in terms of people's psyche, I don't think it's in the stocks. I think if that announcement comes out from United, I do think you're going to see a bounce in uh, Boeing here. Coming up, BK goes on a buying binge. Our resident crypto baller scooping up some serious coin today. He'll tell us why. And later, we're breaking down the big move in shares of Viacom. Stay with us. Much more Fast Money right after this.
Miss a moment of fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got a Bitcoin alert. Let's get to Kate Rooney with all the details. Hey, Kate. Hey, Melissa. Kathy Woods, ARK Invest, is joining the race to launch a Bitcoin ETF. Woods' firm submitted paperwork with the SEC this afternoon. We got that just about an hour ago. It comes a week after the regulator postponed a decision to approve a different Bitcoin ETF, which would have been the first. In total, there are now at least eight applications in for a similar Bitcoin investment vehicle. Woods ETF would trade under the ticker ARKB if approved, and it would track the price of Bitcoin, which is up about 5% today. It's been cut in half, though, from its high around 60000 back in May. Wood is a well-known crypto bull. She's been buying the dip through some different Bitcoin proxies, namely Coinbase, which is in the top 10 holdings for her ARK Innovation Fund. Coinbase is listed in this prospectus as the company that would custody or essentially hold the Bitcoin for this new ETF. ARK has also gotten crypto exposure through the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. And Wood has been optimistic about Gary Gensler as the SEC chair, eventually approving a Bitcoin ETF, despite him calling for some more regulation of this asset class. He is a former MIT professor as well, who taught a course on blockchain. Wood's innovation ETF has also bounced back after underperforming in recent months. It's up about 16% for the month of June. Melissa, back to you. Kate, thank you. Kate Rooney, you know, when I first read the story, I thought about Kathy Wood being able to replace her Bitcoin holdings with her own ETF eventually, which she also she owns ETFs in some of her ETFs, Brian Kelly, which would be not necessarily a good thing for some of the other Bitcoin holdings. But what do you make of all this news? There's a lot of news on Bitcoin. Yeah, so there's a lot out there. First of all, remember, Kathy Wood was one of the first, in fact, I believe the first uh, ETF manager to put Bitcoin into it when she bought the Grayscale uh, trust, I think it was way back in 2014 or 2015. Um, so she has been a pioneer in this. Um, certainly, I think what I would make of this, this is a, you know, add to the long list of companies that now want to have a Bitcoin ETF. I do think we're going to get one relatively soon. I probably in the next 12 months or so would be my wild guess on whether or not we have it. Um, but, you know, I would say if you look at what's happened in the Bitcoin market, we have had a pretty good sentiment shift here over the weekend. And this kind of just adds to that bullish sentiment shift that's going on where you have this this dynamic. There is the adoption trade. That's your bull case and the regulatory trade, which is your bear case. And it seems as though the market is responding more towards the adoption and less towards the regulatory. And it seems as though we're getting a, a turn here on the market. You've been buying a lot. You bought a lot, right? I mean, that's what you're saying. All yep. sorts of coins, especially further out on the risk curve. Like what? Yeah. So, I mean, listen, you know, I came into this underweight a lot of crispos, probably only about uh, 40 long net, 40 percent long. But I bought a lot of Ethereum today. That seems to be doing quite well. Remember, they have an upgrade coming in the middle of July. I also bought something called Solana. Uh, That is another type of smart contract platform, which tends to be a little further out on the risk spectrum. But, you know, Bitcoin and crypto in general, more than any other asset class, is really about the sentiment shifts. And it does appear we're getting a bit of a sentiment shift because we did not respond to the, the negatively to the news that Binance has been uh, banned in the UK. And we did not necessarily respond negatively to the Federal Reserve talking about Tether today and the stablecoin issues. So that to me tells me that negative sentiment is likely over when we're making that shift. 
Hey, BK. It's Karen. Sorry, I can't see you in person, but I like the haircut. I like the background. Let me just ask you something. It's three months ago when Bitcoin was topping 60000 the institutional case and the money from institutions was really sort of part, not a big part of that. So they loved it at 64000 At 34000 it seems not as much. Is that what you're seeing or no? No, it, it's funny. So that is generally the way that Bitcoin works. Nobody wants to talk to you when it's down and they only want to buy it when it's going up. But from my experience, what I'm seeing, the institutional adoption of this has not stopped at all. They are continuing to get into this. They continue to want to be able to offer it either in their products or to their clients. And I haven't seen a hiccup in that at all on the drop from 60 down to 30. Thanks for that, BK. Coming up, shares of Viacom shooting higher today. That's got options traders tuning in. We're breaking down the trade with Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of Viacom, CBS. That's the Kramer cam. He's going to speak to the CEO of Etsy, top of the hour on Mad Money, 6 p.m. Back to Viacom, the stock climbing nearly 5% today, and we've seen a big pickup in options activity on this name. Let's get to Mike Coe with all the action. Hey, Mike. Yeah, already this is a name that trades quite a lot of activity, normally over 100,000 calls, but it traded more than three times the average daily call volume today, and calls outpaced puts by more than four and a half to one. The most active options were all 50 strike, the July 2nd weekly 50 strike, the July's and the August 50s. So options traders appear to be betting that the stock has more room to run, maybe as much as 10% by the end of this week, and certainly by July or August expiration. All right. Thanks for that, um, Mike. Who was pointing out that you were pointing out the action by Viacom today? For, I could not find a reason. I don't know yeah. if it was the options that led it. I have no idea. Right. But I am long. Interesting. All right. Um, Mike, thanks for that. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Final Trade time. Tim Seymour. Morgan Stanley now over a 3% dividend yield. The acquisition of Eaton Vance on top of E-Trade means this is you know, a $6 trillion company, assets under management. Brian Kelly. Well, if I'm right about the sentiment shift in Bitcoin and crypto, then Coinbase should be the beneficiary. Had a really good day. Karen. Yeah, Citigroup, don't feel bad that you didn't get to increase your dividend, but you still have your buybacks and there's great value there. Citibank. On Thursday, you said the Islanders had a 20% chance to bang like that. You said it to win, and they lost. Good for you, Melissa Lee. Biogen, I think it did what it needed to do. Thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.